Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. I, I love to have return guests. It, it tells me that they like us, mm. they don't hate us, and they like being on the show. And <laughs> I like when people approve of me. So, so I'm very happy that Amy Jill Levine agreed to be back on the program. Last time we talked about sort of Jesus in his first century Jewish context. This time we're getting a little bit more of that, but we're focusing on the parables. I The parables are my favorite part of the Gospels, I gotta say. Like, what do the parables kind of jump out to you as, as some of the more meaningful portions of, of the New Testament? Well, they didn't, but I have oh. to say, after hearing uh, AJ talk about it, they they they're, they're in the ascendancy. I think I think the trouble with the the parables, and this is something we'll talk about um, with AJ too, is that you know you sort of feel like you know them too mm. much. Um, certainly, if you sort of grow up in a Christian home like I did, you know you hear them in church in Sunday school, and you think, oh, <laughs> you know, they're just really oh, not not that one again, not that sower. Come on, and. And, you know, they kind of lose something. They lose that immediacy and relevance. But but when you hear someone like AJ talking about them and and she, you know, she puts the kind of the fire back in them and, 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 and opens up new ways to, to understand them. And, and suddenly I think they do become this kind of heart of um, Jesus's preaching and, and message. And, um, yeah, so, so for me they are definitely rising. They're getting <laughs> up there as one of the more interesting things. Well, I, I hope our listeners agree. I, like you said, AJ does such a terrific job of kind of turning these stories around, turning them on their heads a little bit, showing mm. us what you know, would have been shocking to a first-century audience and why these, these yeah. kind of riddles would not have had an easy answer, certainly t- then, or and they shouldn't, they shouldn't now. They should be thought-provoking, you know, still. So, Real quick, Amy Jill Levine is the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, which is a very long title, but it's uh, worth every word. <laughs> and she's also University Professor Emerita of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. And we could have her on for any reason, but in particular because she wrote a wonderful book about parables in kind of their first century Jewish context – it's called Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. And I will put a link in the show description where you guys can get that book. But since we're talking about books, Helen, we have yet another book giveaway. Isn't that exciting? I know. I know. How generous are we? Well, how generous is, uh, <laughs> is Harper Collins for giving us free copies? <laughs> <laughs> we could keep them ourselves. I can, keep, I can sell <laughs> them not. on the street, but I've chosen... To give them away to the members of the Time Travelers Club, our subscription service for uh, the podcast. Let me tell you about what we're giving away, Helen. I sound like a used car salesman. I'm just wondering if I'm getting one of these. Am I getting one or are these just for Only all Only if you subscribe to the Time Travelers Club, which I don't think you uh, have. <laughs> no, I haven't. Neither have I, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> this, uh, what we're giving away is the SBL Study Bible. So our friends over at SBL Press have worked for years on this new revised edition of their study Bible. What's a study Bible, you might ask? It is for people like you. If you are listening to this podcast, you want to have access to a Bible that has so many footnotes and essays and historical context. So it kind of brings to life the the scholarly side of, of reading the Bible. 
This thing is fantastic. I was just flipping through, and I feel like a bunch of our guests are in here. They've written little essays and introductions to different chapters. You don't have to know anything. I think that's the coolest thing about this study Bible. You don't have to be a scholar coming in. They kind of start at the beginning. You don't have to have you know a religious background. They, they explain everything. Really cool book, the SBL Study Bible. So every week we will announce a new winner and ship this book out to you. Get yourself in the running. Subscribe and support the podcast through the Time Travelers Club. We appreciate it. All right, but now let's get to our conversation with A.J. Levine about parables. Amy Jill Levine, welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. I'm delighted to be back with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we are talking parables today. Um, Man, I'm I'm very grateful that we have Helen here as well, because, you know, the Gospel of Mark contains so many great parables, and it even says in there, specifically, that when Jesus taught kind of the masses when he was out there speaking in public, that he taught exclusively in in parables. So, AJ kind of... Big picture context, you know, what do we know about the role and and popularity of parables in first century Jewish culture in which, you know, Jesus was teaching? Right. Um, Well, let's start actually with the marking comment. You know, did Jesus only speak in parables? Obviously not. (laughs) Uh, Granted, Mark doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount or the long discourses in the Gospel of John. But Jesus is doing a whole lot more than going out and saying a sower went out to sow because you can't get an audience with that. (laughs) Mark also tells us uh, that Jesus taught to the crowds in parables and then explained everything to his disciples in private. And the disciples in Mark are not the sharpest students in the seminar. Uh, These these are the folks who, after Jesus feeds 5,000 people with limited resources, and a couple of chapters later feeds another 4,000 people with equally limited resources, he gets into the boat with the guys and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians. And the guys look at each other and say, he's upset because we forgot to bring bread, which clearly (laughs) means that the disciples would not know a metaphor if it hit them over the head. So, yeah, did Jesus speak in parables? Absolutely. Did he speak only in parables? Absolutely not. Did he explain everything to the disciples? If he did, we have most of the parables come without explanation. And if we've got the explanation from the disciples, I'm not inclined to trust them. Okay. (laughs) In parables. Yeah, it's, it's a genre that people would have known both in the Jewish world and in the Greek and Roman worlds. Okay. It's a form of wisdom literature. Um, it, parables are not dissimilar to Aesop's fables, where you, you have a story and then you draw some conclusion about your own life based on what's going on in the story. We find parables in the scriptures of Israel. We find parables in rabbinic literature. We find parables in non-canonical Jewish stuff. So Jews would have gotten, oh, he's talking in a parable. And... <laughs> They also would have known, oh, he's not telling us a banal story of the obvious, and he's not telling us a story for which we need to go hunt for an answer key, because the first one would be, why bother? And the second one would be, it makes Jesus a bad teacher. Mm. He's telling parables, and people would have understood that parables were designed to help them see the world otherwise, to shake up their, their normal worldview, to challenge their complacency to raise ethical questions without necessarily providing answers, and I think to get people talking with each other. Hmm. Parables, to this day, if we read them closely, have that same effect. They raise raise ethical challenges, and they provide prompts for conversation. 
So tell us about um, parables in the Hebrew Bible then. There's not that many in the Hebrew Bible, are there? Where, where, what are the best ones? Uh, well, my two favorite ones, I mean, there are a bunch of them. You can look at pretty much all of wisdom literature's parables. There's yeah, what's going on okay. in Proverbs, for example, or some of the stuff in Ecclesiastes. So the, the two ones that come to mind, the most famous one um, shows up in Second Samuel following David's adultery with Bathsheba and then arranging oh, yeah. the death of her husband. So the court prophet, whose name is Nathan, comes up to David and says to David, David, I have a story to tell you. This already tells us that if a prophet comes up to you and says, I have a story to tell you, run away because it's, it's never good. It's never good. And you can see that in Jesus parables, like when he says to a lawyer, let me tell you the story about a guy who, who got attacked by robbers. If the lawyer were smart, he would have left quickly. Anyway, so Nathan explains that there's this fellow who has many, many flock of sheep uh, and living next door to him is this man who has only one little ewe lamb that he treats like a daughter, you know, and he hand feeds it. So, you know, let's let's call it fluffy. You can picture it with a little rhinestone collar. <laughs> and one day the rich man has a visitor uh, and he wants to provide hospitality. So the rich man, instead of taking a sheep from his own flocks, takes a little fluffy and butchers her and serves lamb chops, which is horrible. And Nathan says to David, what should be done to the rich man who butchered little Fluffy? And David is appropriately appalled by this and says he should be killed. At which point Nathan looks at him and says, you're that guy. You took what didn't belong to you. You destroyed a family. God gave everything into your hand and look at what you did. So the parable winds up uh, indicting David and David suddenly recognizes that indictment. So that's how parables work. At the same time, parables can be somewhat amusing. Um, so the indictment occurs while we're laughing. <laughs> now, not mm. this particular parable. The next one, it actually does. <laughs> and that's why they're so effective as pedagogical tools, because if you can get somebody laughing along with you, you're in a better position to shake up their complacency, and they're, they're in a yeah. better position to receive the critique that they're about to get. The other one that I really like shows up in the book of Judges, chapter 9. Um, and it's sometimes called the parable of the trees. It's told by the judge Jotam uh, with respect to his brother Abimelech, who was managed, whose name, by the way, means my father is king, which is a great name if you want to set up a dynasty. Um, <laughs> so Abimelech <laughs> has managed to, to uh, gain political authority, mostly by murdering any of his rivals. Um, so here's how the parable goes. And I'm, I'm just, as I did with the last one, just going to adapt it for contemporary mores. Uh, the trees decide that they need a king to rule over them. So they should be like, you know, every everybody else. And they go up to the oak tree and they say, oh, mighty oak, rule over us. And the oak tree says, listen, I'm too busy making furniture. I have a day job. Go find somebody else. And they go up to the elm tree and they say, oh, mighty elm, rule over us. And the elm says, no, I'm too busy providing shade for upper middle class neighborhoods. I've got a day job. Find somebody else. <laughs> and they run the entire forest, like the eucalyptus. We should be multicultural. Um, and they say to the eucalyptus rule over us. And the eucalyptus says, I'm too busy with these marsupials that keep eating my leaves and falling down. I've got a day job. Finally, they go up to the bramble, which is good for absolutely nothing else. And they say, oh, mighty bramble, rule over us. And the bramble goes, sure will, uh, which actually says something about people who put into office uh, candidates who were entirely unqualified and will mm. likely do damage. Now, this parable works anywhere in the world at any time. Why? Because there will be people anywhere in the world at any time who will not be happy with the local governing authorities. Right. So it's edgy and it's funny and it's not a direct insult, although it's clearly targeted. 
so nobody can then come and arrest you. I was just talking about trees. <laughs> um, there are other parables. The wise woman of Tekoa, for example, gives uh, what looks like a parable. The wise woman of Abel Beth Maka gives a parable. Uh, and I think, although I can't prove it, that the parabolic form might have been an, a good form of political protest and was probably also used by women because you can get away saying all sorts of critical things. Mm. And then, well, mm. no, it wasn't me. I was just talking about a hypothetical. <laughs> it's just a story. It's just a story. Um, well, it, things can be just stories, but stories have an enormous amount of power and stories can yeah. inspire and stories can also lead to rebellion. Wow. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love I love the scene that you described with Nathan talking to David and David. He's kind of in the role of the disciples there, where he's he completely doesn't get it, or he, or he jumps and goes, "Who? Where is this man? Bring him to me. We must kill him." I mean, like he, he he can't catch that we're talking in in metaphors and parables, but that's funny. Um, all right, so if we're talking about again the sort of the Jewish context of parables, you have the Old Testament, you have certainly the New Testament, you know, as a Jewish document, but also. You know, some later, like, rabbinic literature. So in these rabbinic texts to parables, again, are they kind of central to the the wisdom literature, to the teaching? Um, When we get into rabbinic literature, rabbinic literature is substantially a law code. So if you look at the mission, you get, you know, Rabbi, this says this regarding, you know, when you light your candles or when you say the prayers. And then Rabbi, that says this. And the people in Pumbadi to do something else. So it's basically minority opinion, majority opinion, uh, tertiary responses, and so on. Uh, but when you get into Midrashic literature, like Genesis Rabbah or Deuteronomy Rabbah, um, which are somewhat like running commentaries on the narrative materials, um, Agadic Midrashim, you get a lot of parables. Uh, mm. And the parables very often have the same type of structure or at least the same analogies uh, that Jesus' parables do. So you get parables about weddings. Uh, or you get parables about laborers in the vineyard, or you get mm. parables, uh, which already comes from the prophet Isaiah, who tells, who has the song of the vineyard, vineyard in Isaiah 5. So you get, in effect, variations on the theme. Um, when I was a kid, I played with this toy called Mr. Potato Head. I don't know if they had that in the oh, UK. Oh, yes, yes. And there was a, Universal. <laughs> okay, and there was also a Mrs. Potato Head. Um, and, and we might think of the, the parables as the potato. So the potato was mm. a vineyard. And then you just put on different accoutrements, different accessories. The parable, the potato is a wedding. Uh, The potato is uh, two people having a conversation. Uh, and, and then you develop it as, as, as you might. So there, there are certain genres that people will simply glom onto and then develop those parables. Uh, parables about going, selling seed in fields. Mm. Um, the rabbinic parables, the Hebrew would be mashal, plural mashalin. Uh, typically have what's called a nimshal in interpretation. So you'll get a parable, and then and then the rabbis will say, and this means, or this okay. refers to. They don't always, but they frequently do. Uh, on occasion in the New Testament, we get a this means something or other. Uh, but it seems to me that most of the explanations we have in the parables in the New Testament come from the gospel writers rather than from Jesus, because most of the explanations don't neatly fit the parables. And I think hmm. if Jesus told some of these parables, and uh, like the parable of the prodigal son uh, or the lost sheep or the lost coin, Luke says it's all about repenting and forgiving. And I don't think they are, because hmm. if, if, if somebody loses, loses a sheep, like this, the guy's own fault, he loses the sheep, he finds the sheep, he brings the sheep home, and he throws a party. Um, I don't think that's about repenting and forgiving, and I don't think any first century Jew is going to get that either. So I think that's Luke's gloss, because Luke is a good pastor, or a good priest, and Luke is saying to the people who, who are listening to this gospel, here's my takeaway. 
there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't think it's historical. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously you can read these parables today and be just as challenged and just as interested in them. Since we are a biblical time machine, I, I do want to travel back to the first century and maybe you could give, you know, some specific examples of parables that can better be understood or understood in a different way if we understand their context, if we understand their historical context. So what what might be a good example of one that has sort of deeper and more interesting meaning once we understand more about the world in which it was being told? Sure. Uh, but before we do that, just to note that you can read a parable without knowing anything about historical context, and the sure. parables can mm. still work on you, which is how independent Bible study does this. Uh, it seems mm -hmm. to me if you really want to understand Jesus and you really want to understand the Gospels, it pays to take that extra step and do a little bit more history. It just, it just makes mm -hmm. the, the Bible study uh, more interesting, more ethically challenging. Uh, and for people who are believers in Jesus and Lord, it makes Jesus more interesting too, and that's not a bad thing. All right, the easiest one is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a terrible title. Uh, because the, the title Good Samaritan presumes that all the other Samaritans are problematic to, at the least. Um, it, it helps to know about Jewish-Samaritan relations at the time. Mm. And here, you actually don't even need to be a biblical scholar. You just need to read the Bible. So the parable of the Good Samaritan shows up in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 9, and remember back then there weren't chapter divisions or verse divisions, and people would have read these things straight through, kind of like we'd see a movie straight through, watch a TV mm. show straight through. Um, in Luke chapter, at the end of Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the entourage are making their way from Galilee in the north to, to Judea to Jerusalem in the south. Uh, and at the end of chapter 9, they stop off in a Samaritan village, and they're seeking hospitality, as one does. Uh, and the Samaritans refuse to provide Jesus hospitality because he's a Jew and he's heading toward Jerusalem. And it helps to know that Jews and Samaritans have rival holy sites, Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans, Mount Zion for the Jews. They have rival priesthoods, rival Pentateuchs, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, rival messianic expectations, and they're related. Uh, so they're also claiming the same legacy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Samaritans refuse Jesus' hospitality, at which point James and John, who were two of the apostles, say to Jesus, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy this village? Um, <laughs> you know, which is not an appropriate response. It's an allusion actually to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because the prophet Ezekiel says that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of lack of hospitality, right? mm -hmm. right, that's, which is also helpful to know for another subject for another time. And Jesus has to explain that you don't drop a bomb because of lack, lack of hospitality and they go off and find someplace else. <laughs> So that by the time we get up to our parable, which is just in the next chapter, uh, and there's this fellow who's going down the Jerusalem to Jericho Road. You always go down from Jerusalem to somewhere else. You always go up to Jerusalem. Right? That's how the metaphor works. So he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's waylaid by bandits, and he's robbed and stripped and left half dead in a ditch. And a priest and Levite come by and walk by. Now we have to figure out who the priest and Levite are. We'll come back to that. Hmm. And a Samaritan comes by. Nobody, if you've just read the Gospel of Luke, would expect the Samaritan to show any compassion because we've already seen a Samaritan village that shows total lack of hospitality and lack of concern. And if we know more about Jewish-Samaritan rivalry through the centuries, the parable becomes even more uh, shocking that the Samaritan is the one who stopped. The earlier name for Samarita, Samaria is Shechem. And back in Genesis chapter 34, where the prince of Shechem, whose name happens to be Shechem, which is convenient, uh, either rapes or seduces uh, a young woman, Jacob's daughter, whose name is Dina. 
So if I see a Samaritan coming toward me, I might think this person's going to rape me. Uh, in the parable of the trees, by the way, in Judges 9, uh, Abimelech sets up his, his base of operations at Shechem. So that's a place of murder. Um, hmm. uh, Shechem eventually becomes the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And the name then becomes Samaria. And following the Assyrian conquest, this northern area takes on the name of the capital city. It becomes Samaria. So I've got this, I'm the guy in the ditch, and I've got this person coming toward me, and I think, how could it be worse than being beaten, robbed, and left, stripped, and left half dead in the ditch? Oh, now it's a Samaritan. It's like, I don't need this. Uh, and the Samaritan is the one who, who winds up caring for me in, in, in quite lavish detail, and, and that's extraordinary. A number of Christians, uh, or people who don't do the history, think about the priest. Why did the priest and Levite walk by? Well, they have no clue who priests and Levites are. But they, many of them have been taught uh, that the priest and Levite would have walked by the guy in the ditch because they're worried about purity regulations. Because if mm. they touch a corpse, the guy's not dead yet. But if he dies while they're attending him, or if he's already dead and they touch him, then they will be ritually impure. So the idea then becomes that the priest and Levite pass by the guy in the ditch because they're following Jewish law, which is nonsense nine ways to Sunday. Um <laughs> According to Torah, priests, and, and priesthood in Judaism is inherited. If, if you're, you're a priest, if your father's a priest, so you can't get into it, you can't get out of it. It's just there. Um, <laughs> there are laws that restrict corpse contact to priests. So, you know, to this day among practicing Jews, and we still know who the priests and the Levites are. Um, if there's a funeral, if you're from the priestly line, um, you'd stand outside the cemetery gates unless it's an immediate family member, a parent, child, sibling, or spouse. But there's no such law incumbent upon Levites. Moreover, uh, according to Judaism, saving a life trumps all these other laws. It's pekuach mm. nefesh in Hebrew. So you save a life. So the priest and Levite aren't doing what they're supposed to do in the first place. Moreover, the priest is, is not going up to Jerusalem where ritual purity would have been an issue in the temple. He, like the traveler, is going down from Jerusalem. So he doesn't have to worry about being in a ritually pure state. How many more? Oh, what? In the book of Tobit, which is in the Deuterocanonical Collections, the Old Testament Apocrypha, sometimes I have canon envy. I love this book. I think it's fabulous, <laughs> um, even though it's not in the Jewish canon. It's about a lovesick demon and a magical fish and an angel in disguise and a guy who goes blind when bir a bird poops in his eyes. So <laughs> the blind... The we need an episode on Tobit. Oh, that would be fabulous. It's a great book. <laughs> Um, so Tobit, who was the titular hero, uh, uh, spends the first two chapters of the book burying dead bodies uh, mm. in, in Assyria. Apparently dead bodies are a thing on the street. Um, and that's in part what makes him a saint. So rather mm. than stay away from a body, um, he's going to do the right thing, which is to make sure the body not lie unburied. Josephus, our first century historian, actually talks about Jews in the first century being known for this as well, because Jews mm. didn't think that corpses should be left to rot out on the street. Uh, the Mishnah, a compendium of Jewish law, says, says in Tractate Nazir, Nazir is about Nazarites, and Nazarites are people in utmost states of holiness. Um, Samson, Samson was a Nazarite. Samson was a lousy Nazarite, but he's supposed to be a Nazarite. Uh, even Nazarites and high priests must bury an unattended corpse. So no matter where I look in antiquity, it's clear that the priests and the Levite are not doing what they're supposed to do. And that would have been surprising. So while I'm thinking, well, why aren't the priest and Levite doing what they're doing? Well, if I'm a first century Jew, <laughs> I know that Jews divide into three categories, right? You're either a priest, 
which means you're a descendant from Aaron, uh, Moses' brother. Or you're a Levite, which means you're descended from Aaron's ancestor, Levi, who's Jacob, Jacob's son number three. Um, or you're an Israelite, which means you're descended from any of other of Jacob's children. Um, and if you're a Jew by choice, which they had back then, you get counted in the Israelite category. So I'm thinking, well, if a priest goes by and a Levite goes by, the third one's going to be an Israelite. And the Israelite's going to come and do the right thing. And instead of getting priest, Levite, Israelite, which is what everybody would have expected, I get priest, Levite, Samaritan. And priest, Levite, Samaritan is just off the charts. Hmm. So if we think today um, about uh, categories of three, so if you're Christian, you might say father, son, and the response is going to be Holy Spirit, right? But if you go from father to son to Satan, everybody's going to look at you and go, what? Um, (laughs) And that's the type of shock that people in the first century might have heard. A Samaritan, what? Uh, and instead of thinking of ourselves as the good Samaritan, which is how the contemporary takeaway from that parable, yeah, we're all good Samaritans, which is why we have good Samaritan hospitals and Samaritan purse. Um, in Australia, there's a good Samaritan donkey sanctuary, you know, because there should be one. Um, sure. it, it, we should think of ourselves as the guy in the ditch and think, I might rather die than acknowledge that this person from this group is going to help me and then realize that's the only way we're going to live. Um, so it's the sense of being able to see uh, the human potential for compassion in everyone. Uh, for me, when when I wrote the book, I was thinking about Samaria because I like maps. I can't find my way anywhere. I'm just geographically inept, but I do like maps and I like seeing where things are. Um, so Samaria is today the West Bank. So if I hear the parable today, you know, I'm an Israeli Jew going down the Jerusalem to Jericho Road, and I'm waylaid by robbers who beat me, stripped me, uh, traumatized me, which is actually the Greek word, wounded, Hmm. and leave me half dead in a ditch. Uh, And two people who should have stopped to help don't. Um, You know, the first is an Orthodox Jew, uh, rabbi who walks by, which he should not have done. Uh, and a second is a Missouri Jew. It was kind of liberal Jew. You know, I mean, the th- third one I'm expecting to be the atheist. Uh, but the one who stops to help me is a Palestinian Hamas sympathizer. Mm. Well, that's hard to picture. But if we can even picture that, then we may have some way of picturing things other than what's happening now. And if we think about what if Jesus were a Samaritan? Well, if Jesus were a Samaritan... The parable would have been called the parable of the good Jew, which is equally offensive. Uh, Mm. And the Samaritan uh, needs to be, and there are Samaritans today, by the way, Um, but the individual needs, who who might be a resident of Gaza, sees the Israeli soldier coming by. And the thought is, this person's going to kill me. And it turns out the soldier uh, brings the person to to a a functional ambulance to get him the health care that he needs. So what the parable can do is is change the perspective, change the picture by suggesting alternatives. At the same time, uh, if we think about why the priest and Levite walk by the guy in the ditch, it's not because of purity rules, rules so why do they go by? Because there are bandits on the road, and this guy could be a decoy. Mm-hmm. So it also suggests that if you do stop to help, if, if you are that person, uh, you may be risking your life in the process. Hmm. And it's still worth doing. And a lot of people would have been the priest and the Levite, wouldn't they? When you think about it, really, you know, if you're on a road and you think there's robbers around, you know, Um, most of us would probably have been those two. Right. The 
the American civil rights worker, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., preached on this parable, and he was talking about uh, the strike of the sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, which is about three hours from where I am in Nashville. Uh, and he said, well, we don't actually know why the priest and the Levite passed by the guy in the ditch, but here's what my imagination tells me. My imagination says to me, the priest and Levite were afraid. The priest and the Levite asked themselves, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Because there were bandits on the road. Uh, King says the Samaritan asked a different question. And parables are great for helping us ask different questions. Uh, the Samaritan asked, if I do not stop to help this man, who will? Uh, what will happen to him? And King says, if I don't stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? And he's assassinated a couple of weeks later in Memphis. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's yet another permutation. And in terms mm-hmm. of asking questions... The parable is a response to a lawyer who says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which is actually a very good question because you need to know who's in and who's out and who has the same rights and responsibilities that you do and who doesn't. Samaritans at the time, by the way, were test cases. Are they in or are they out? Hmm. Uh, At the end of the parable, uh, Jesus changes the lawyer's question. So it's no longer who is my neighbor, but who showed himself to be neighbor to the guy who fell among the robbers. So parables not only can shake us up, they can help us change the question that we want to ask to say, well, the better question under these particular circumstances may be this. And that's a nice way of getting around some of the difficulties that are besetting us where we can't answer the question as it's posed. But if we rephrase the question, we may be able to get somewhere. So I mean, that's really interesting stuff. So historical sort of context is important, but what about um, sort of literary context and links with you know the, the scriptures and um, how do they help us to to understand or at least to to give us new frames of reference? Right, and there are a lot of parables that as soon as they start, your Jewish audience is going to go, "Oh, I know that one." Uh, but since they also know this is a parable, they know that what they know is not necessarily going to go in the yeah. direction they think it's going to go. Just wait for it. Right. So in Luke chapter 15, we have the, pro- the uh, uh, parable that's usually called the prodigal son, mm. um, which already skews the interpretation. Like Jesus is not yeah. walking around with little yeah. note cards going, you know, prodigal son, good Samaritan or whatever. Um, so as soon as we give the title, we're already emphasizing one part of the parable rather than the other. The parable begins, there was a man who had two sons, and the Jews have it because they know exactly how this one's going to play out because Adam had two sons, Cain and Abel, and everybody knows, go with Abel. Okay, yeah. Through most of Genesis 4, (laughs) Abel is dead, but at least it was his sacrifice that was accepted, um, and Cain becomes a fratricide and an exile, so you know, go with the younger son. And Abraham has two sons. The older one is Ishmael, and the younger one is Isaac. And Ishmael, with his mother Hagar, is eventually banished because of Sarah's jealousy, Abraham's wife. Uh, And Isaac, despite, I think, being quite traumatized by dad, who almost kills him uh, in Genesis chapter 22, winds up inheriting the birthright and the blessing. So everybody goes, go with the younger son. And then Isaac has fraternal twins. And the older one, Esau, comes out of the womb all red and hairy, which is already a little bit of a problem. Uh, And then Jacob comes out and he's all smooth, like a smooth operator. Uh, And Jacob manages to... um, to trick his brother Esau out of his birthright by bartering the birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Um, and then eventually later he gets the blessing by dressing up as Esau. Uh, and, you know, uh, Isaac, the dad, is blind. So it's like, yeah, it seems like Esau, it smells like Esau, feels like Esau because he's wearing goat skin. But, you know, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but I think I'll go with it anyway. 
Um, so Jacob winds up getting both birthright and blessing. And Esau, he gets a secondary blessing, but it's not the one he wanted. Um, even King Solomon is the younger of two sons because the older mm. son is the one who was conceived out of the adulterous relationship between David and Bathsheba. Oh, yes. That child dies. Yeah, who dies? So mm. when you keep going down the system, go with the younger kid. <laughs> so as soon as I've got, there was a man who had two sons. Uh, I'm expecting the first one to come out to be uh, hairy and violent um, and somewhat uncivilized. Uh, when Esau asked for that bowl of pot- porridge, um, he says to Jacob in Hebrew, give me some of red, red this. Um, so Esau is not the most articulate Hebrew in the ancient Near East. So, you know, and I'm thinking I'm going to get rid of this guy uh, and I'm going to get the, the smooth younger son who's so smart and so clever and so faithful. And I don't. I get the younger brother first. Uh, and he's not what I expected. So already I'm, I'm somewhat confused by this parable. With whom is my loyalty lying? Can I go with this younger son? What about the older brother? What, what do you make of the, the, the older son in that? I think he's always a difficult um, person to, to resonate with, isn't he? What, what, what do you think? Oh, I like him the... enormously and I totally sympathize yeah, with him. <laughs> I do. I do too. And I think that's why I'm asking yeah. because, you know, everyone's, it's like everyone's looking at this, <laughs> this younger son and, you know, being an elder child myself, probably, <laughs> I'm looking at this guy, he's done everything right. Yeah. And, you know, exactly. So, so do, do you have any readings of him yeah, that, yeah. that help well, those of so, us who sympathize So we're him. already set up by Luke, um, because I think Jesus told parables on multiple occasions. If you're a professional yeah, singer and you yeah. sing your signature song wherever you get a booking. Why not? You know, yeah. Um, or if you're a Bible scholar, you'll tell the same story for different lectures. You can recycle. You know, have you heard this one before? No? Okay, fine. Really? Really? Yeah. So, I mean, let's be honest about these things. So um, Luke begins the chapter 15. Uh, Jesus is dining with sinners and tax collectors, which is typical for Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes show up and they grumble, uh, which is pretty much what they do in the Gospel of Luke. So uh, Luke has already set up our parable to think that the younger brother, um, the one who goes out and spends all his money on dissolute living, um, and we don't know what that is. I mean, prostitutes, internet porn, alcohol gambling, whatever. It wasn't good. Not necessarily sinful, but it certainly wasn't good. I think it was just foolish and stupid. Um, he gets associated with the sinners and the tax collectors as people not doing, you know, what looks like particularly moral behavior. Uh, and the older brother gets, who does everything right, gets associated with the Pharisees who in Luke do not get good press. So we're already set up by the narrative of the third gospel to think of younger brother is just darling and older brother is just awful. So Luke's already skewed the model. Um, St. Jerome, who actually talked about it, called it the parable of the prodigal and the prudent. I'm much more happy with that. Hmm. Uh, I, my preference is to call it the parable of the man who had two sons, because why yeah, not? Yeah. So yeah. when we finally meet the younger brother, we meet him after the entire story about the prodigal has been told. So the prodigal goes off, he blows all his money, a famine hits the land, he, uh, he has to go and find work, he hires himself out to a farmer who sends him to go feed the pigs, which is a come down for a Jew. Um, and he'd gladly have fed himself on the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. So, I mean, it's, it's the perfect storm. And then he comes to himself, which is basically like the light bulb goes on, or oil lamp. Um, and he says to himself, you know, how many of my... Oh, and by the way, so internal monologue is a sign of conniving, typically. Mm-hmm. So if you get thought bubbles, it's, you know, get something, say it to somebody else. He's thinking, how many of my father's hired hands have bread and enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I know what I will do. 
you know, I'll go to dad and sound religious. So he goes home and he, he recites his rehearsed line and dad doesn't care. Dad's just happy that Junior was home. So he throws him a barbecue with the fatted calf, grain fed calf, gives, re-accessorizes him. So he gets new sandals, he gets a new ring, he gets a new robe, and he's now with the fatted calf buffet. And the kicker is the next line. The older brother is out in the field and he hears the sound of music and dancing. And he has to call an enslaved individual to find out what's going on. And the enslaved person says to him, oh, you know, uh, your brother came home safe and sound and dad made barbecue. And the older brother becomes resentful and refuses to go in. In other words, dad had enough time to call the band and the caterer, but he didn't bother to call the younger, the older brother because there was a father who had two sons and he forgot to count. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that comes from the two earlier parables where you have in Luke chapter 15, where you have this guy with a hundred sheep and he loses one. Well, how do you know you've lost a sheep? Because you can't tell them to line up in groups of 10 because sheep can't count. So you have to count them. And that's how he knows he's lost one. And then it's the all out search. Um, And then you have a woman who has 10 coins and she's lost one. Well, how do you know? Because you have to count them. Um, And then it's an all out search and then there's a party. So by the time I get to the man with two sons, I've gone from one missing out of 100 to one missing out of 10. And now I've got each one of them missing. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that the younger brother was the one who was missing. But it turns out they were both missing. And now the older brother is missing. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty easy to pick up a sheep. uh, And it's very easy to pick up a coin. And it's almost impossible to pick up a disaffected child. So when the older brother, oh, I like that reading. Right, the, yeah. dad goes out, finally it occurs to dad that mm-hmm. the older brother's not there. So <laughs> is it too late? He, goes, he leaves the party, he goes out to the field um, and he begins to plead with him. And Jesus is too good a storyteller to tell, tell us what dad said, because at this point it doesn't matter what dad said. Uh, mm-hmm. Older brother has to say what's on his mind. And he says, look, all these years I've been working like one enslaved to you, but there's an enslaved person standing right there going, no, you haven't. Let's let's not exaggerate these things. Um, and you've never even given me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But the parable begins with the father dividing his property between the two sons. I mean, the, the older brother could have had that goat anytime he wants. It's it's his. But he's still thinking of himself as, as underneath his, his father's rule, mm-hmm. uh, still within his father's household. Um, and then he says, but but this son of yours which is distancing language. Like if, if one of my children does something wrong, I say to the partner, this son of yours, you know, obviously <laughs> my child would not have backed the car out of the garage without looking to see if the garage door was open. My child would never have done that. Your child would have done that. Um, uh, who devoured your living with prostitutes. Now, we don't know that disliving meant prostitutes. And, and I, I, I don't have a sense that Junior sent home a postcard with a picture of the Whore of Babylon on it saying, having a wonderful time with you. With you. It's all distancing <laughs> Thank language. You, yeah. um, all right, you gave him the fighted calf. You know, what gives? Um, and then dad has to plead with the older brother because you just can't pick him up and bring him back home. This is, mm-hmm. Listen, beloved mm-hmm. child, techno. Uh, the same word that Mary uses for Jesus when she, when she thinks he's lost, she's lost him and he ha- she has to go back to the Jerusalem temple to find him when, he, when he's a kid, when he's 12. Uh, beloved child, you were with me always and all that is mine is yours, which is legally true because dad divided his property between them and junior has blown all the money. Uh, but this your brother. So that's that. It's not no longer your son, right? The distance is your brother. This your brother was lost and is now found. He's dead and he's now alive and we had to celebrate. And the parable leaves us out there in the field. Mm. And then we have to figure out what happens next. Mm-hmm. Does the older brother come back in? Does he reconcile with junior? 
what's going to happen when dad dies? Um, is Junior ever going to get with the program and stop, part, stop partying and actually get to work and do something to contribute to the household? Um, what are the neighbors going to do? Because they're at the party. Uh, what, <laughs> what is the band and the caterer going to do? What are the enslaved? This is a very wealthy household. So what are the enslaved people going to do? Are they going to say, when have you treated us like a, a son? So the parable opens up to numerous permutations. There's no one right answer. Uh, and I don't think it's a question of what does this parable mean, which would be what's the right answer. Mm-hmm. But what does this parable do? How do we enter it? Do we enter as the older brother? Um, Helen, you just suggested that's where you identify. I identify with him yeah. too, but I'm an, I'm an only child. Uh, do we identify with the younger brother? Do we identify with the dad? I have two children, yeah, so sometimes yeah. I think, you know, how do I make sure that, that my kids feel that they are equally loved, mm. even though they're very, very different mm. and they need support in different ways? Mm. And at different times of your life, you sort of identify with different characters, exactly I think, so. which is one of the powerful things about these stories. Right. So when I was a kid, I would identify with children in stories. Now that I'm an adult, yeah. I tend to identify with the parents. Um, So the parable continues to take on new meaning as our own life experiences change or as we age um, or as if we become parents. Um, And that's in part why they continue to provoke, which is a good thing. Yeah, AJ, I mean, you you did such a good job. And I'm so glad you chose those two parables because of their depth. Um, And also, like you said, there's not there's not that one answer now. You you mentioned something in your book that you feel like parables have been domesticated over time, that they would have had more shock value to their original audiences, but something has been sort of watered down in, in the ensuing centuries. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I, not only parables have been domesticated, I think Jesus has been domesticated because hmm. um, Jesus gets made palatable. Um, and usable um, rather than being able to be heard uh, more correctly, uh, more hi- in, in a way that's more historically embedded. Um, I guess the modern term would be Jesus has been colonized. Um, we, hmm. we take the tradition and we, we strip it of everything that we find to be useful and the stuff that we don't find to be useful, we just leave there. Hmm. Um, and, and I find that to be a denial of his own identity in his own time and place. Um, so it We've already heard the idea of the Samaritan as being the one who who is, you know, like the good one. Um, one of my favorite parables is uh, the parable of the the uh, the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, um, which shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and if we hear that in its original context, we get a complete reversal of the way it's normally preached. Well, remind, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank. Remind us just quickly what. The arc of that story is the arc of okay. that parable. Okay, so a, fair, a parable, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Uh, and by the time we're in Luke chapter 18 or thereabouts, um, Luke has given us Pharisees who we don't like and darling tax collectors. I mean, just sweet, lovely tax collectors who, who have dinner with Jesus. Actually, so do Pharisees, but those dinners tend to go a little bit wonky too. Um, uh, and the Pharisee is standing uh, by himself and he's praying, thank you, God, uh, that you have uh, not made me like other people. You know, adulterers, thieves, and even like their tax collector, by the way, who works for the Roman occupation government. I fast twice a week, which Pharisees were not required to do. So he's like a super Pharisee. I give a tenth of everything I have. He ties a tenth of everything, which again makes him super, a supererogatory Pharisee. Um, you know, I'm not a sinner. I'm not an adulterer. You know, thank you, God, that you haven't put me in the place of some of these other people who have, who have gone, uh, into, uh, 
working for their own self-advantage rather than working for the benefit of the community. Meanwhile, the tax collector is standing far off and he won't even look up to heaven, but he's beating his breast and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So uh, the end of the parable is, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified. And the Greek uh, preposition here is para than the other. And para is the same word that we have with parable or paralegal or paradox or paramedic. Um, And it can mean either rather than, which is how the parable is almost invariably interpreted, or it can mean side by side. Um, So if we translate para as rather than, in other words, the Pharisee gets nothing, but the tax collector is the one who goes home justified. And that would be a little surprising because first century Jews would have thought of the Pharisee as being the super righteous person and the tax collector as being the, super, the, the not righteous at all. So you get this reversal. That's a little bit shocking, but that's insufficient. Why? Because if that's where we leave the parable, um, then we're going to get, oh, the people reading saying, oh, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. And that's weird. You know, thank God I don't tithe. Thank God I am an adulterer. Thank God I am a thief. Thank God I do work for the Roman occupation government. That's a little bit weird. Um, I think for that first century audience, the shocker um, is going to be they both go down justified. Now, how does that work? Because Jews have a sense of communal atonement um, and communal benefit. Uh, We talk about a tradition known as the zechut avot, the merits of the fathers. Um, and we can see this in, in the idea that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were so faithful, and God made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that even if we Jews through the generations have been screwing up, we can still say, remember what Abraham did when he bound his son upon the altar, right? Um, so we have this communal sense. If one person does something good, then the entire community benefits from that. Uh, That's in part how the cross works. It's because of the faith of Jesus. One person does something extraordinarily good and extraordinarily uh, with extraordinary fidelity that everybody else kind of tap into that. Mm -hmm. And if one person does something bad, then the entire community suffers for it uh, because of this communal sense of responsibility. So what's happened? The Pharisee has more merit than he knows what to do with. Plus, the temple has a lot of merit. And suddenly these two are going back down side by side and the tax collector has tapped into the Pharisee's merit. And I'm thinking, if I'm the Pharisee and I'm doing all that, this tax collector is going to (laughs) benefit? And that's part of how the mercy of God works. Uh, For me, and I put this in the book, the model was middle school. I don't know if you have middle school in the UK. This is grades five through eight. I mean, I guess it's, yeah, yeah a bit in the middle, right. but so yeah, we just have to. It's intermediate <laughs> system that the U.S. system for a long time thought was a really good idea, which means you stuck you stick all the adolescents in one place and hope for the best. <laughs> it's similar to like the seventh circle of hell. I don't know how it how Yeah, it or lower, or lower. <laughs> right, so in middle school, um, we used to do what was called group work, where the teacher would divide us up into groups of four, and we had this group project. And invariably, there would be the smart one. That was me. Uh. The one who was good at art, who could do the cover for the project. The one at whose home we met, who had a parent would, who would supply us with snacks, you know, chips or popcorn or whatever. And the slacker. I mean, the kid who's <laughs> going to do nothing and doesn't care. Three of us do our jobs and, and we get the A. And the slacker gets the A. And I'm thinking, I did yeah. all this work and he benefits. And how is that fair? And that's, that's the shock. And the next shock is, now, what is my responsibility here? 
Do you take care of the weaker link in the community? Do you try to bring the slacker along? Uh, is, was my teacher as generous, as generous as God is generous, who makes, as Matthew puts it, who makes the sun shine on the, the just and the unjust alike? Um, when might come the time when, when I need the slacker to fix my car? Because you know? uh, clearly the slacker has other uh, talents that I do not have. So it opens up these possibilities of what do we owe each other? Um, how do we protect each other? And when other people benefit from what we do, what do we owe them to make sure those benefits are not are not wasted or taken for granted? And how, now that the uh, tax collector is tapped into the Pharisee's merit, how does the Pharisee make that payoff? Because they're both Jews. They're both children of God. And instead of saying, there but for the grace of God go I, which is basically what the Pharisee's prayer is to say, well, okay, maybe I should be helping this person rather than dismissing this person. I think that's a real shocker. I think that's really hard, yeah. and I think it's ethically exactly on target. So, as as we know, you know, the, the Gospels were not actually written by Jesus. We don't know if these were the words that he said. These were written by other people uh, many decades, sometimes a century after his time. But do you think we have good reason to believe that this is how Jesus taught, like you said, not exclusively, but that parables were central to his teachings. Do you think that comes through? Well, I mean, if all we had was the Gospel of John, then we wouldn't have any parables. John doesn't even mm. know the word. Um, there are things that look kind of like parables, but they're not. Um, so, if we just had John, or if we just had Paul, we'd have no clue that Jesus talked in parables. Uh, but I see no reason to deny Jesus' composition of most of the parables, and perhaps not the conclusions that come to them. Uh, because otherwise I have to invent somebody, you know, like named Fred or George or whatever, who invented the parables. And that's, that's just making things more complicated. Uh, that I get explanations for a number of parables that don't fit the parables suggests to me that this is traditional material that the evangelist hung on to, uh, and then decided to tame it or reinterpret it or to do something with it. Um, we do have parables in the Gospel of Thomas, some, and I think Thomas actually had access to the synoptic tradition, but Thomas gives some others that are, that are distinct. Parable about a woman who's carrying a jar and it's got a hole in it, and when she gets home, there's no grain left. Not one of the better parables, but <laughs> se seems to fit into the system. Um, so yeah, I think he talked in parables. It would have been something that Jews would have done. He's a Jew. Um, I don't think he's a peasant. I think he's an artisan, but um, he's part of that, that tradition of folk wisdom. So it's one thing to argue, you know, argue over law. It's something else to tell stories. Arguing mm. over law typically requires a little bit more training. Arguing over stories does not, and anybody can tell a story. Jesus just happens to be, I think, a very, very good storyteller. Um, uh, the late great John Meyer, um, in his series *Marginal Jew*, did did an entire volume on parables, in which he concluded that he could only prove that he could only prove. That's a tough word there. Uh, that four go back to Jesus. And I look at the four that he came up with and thinking, no, based on your argument, I don't think you've proven this at all. Um, and he concludes that the rest of them are non-liquid, not proven. I think most of them go back to Jesus. But with any historical Jesus stuff, the burden of proof is on the person who says Jesus said it or Jesus didn't say it. Hmm. Um, I find it easier to think that he said it and then people had to figure out what to do with it then that somebody else made it up and then other people had to, I mean, it's just simply simpler. Sure, sure. Um, and they strike me as uh, consistent with what else Jesus said and did. Uh, if Jesus is, uh, Jesus is, I think, uh, an eschatologically oriented, end of the world type person. 
uh, who thinks that the kingdom of God is about to break in and he's got some hand in bringing it about. So he's in the business of preparing his people for this inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which is why, for example, he's separating families. You know, you have to hate your kids and you have to hate your wife and whatnot. Um, I think he's celibate because you don't need another generation to come along. You know, we'll, we'll just be like the angels in heaven. So we don't have to worry about, you know, who's going to pay into the social security account in the next 20 years. Um, and, and he's also telling these stories to help people in that type of preparation. So the parables strike me as consistent with what else I have found. Mm. Uh, the idea of the the enormous generosity of God. Uh, the idea that, you know, come the end of the day, there's going to be some recompense here, depending upon what you've done. Uh, so, uh, and I think he's also funny in some of his other teachings, and the parables have that sense of humor mm. as well. Where um, the parables, which tend to exaggerate that thing about the mustard tree or too much yeast, that type of hyperbole is consistent with things like, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Really? <laughs> you know, but you sit up and you take notice when you hear things like that. So, yeah, I think he talked in parables, and I think the gospel writers came in and noodled with them a little bit to change the words, to add in endings. Matthew typically takes Mark's parables and makes them more violent. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I think he told stories about women, and there are women in parables, because Jews told stories about women, like Esther and Ruth and Judith and so on. No, makes sense. Makes sense to me. Well, all right, so we did not get to ask you this last time because it's kind of a new thing, but we ask all of our guests that if they have the opportunity to step into our very expensive, pretty reliable time machine and they got to push some buttons, where and when would you most like to travel? This is a big question. Yeah, so I've been thinking about that, and I've actually been running it by some of my friends who have come up with all sorts of explanations. Oh, cool. Like, you know, the two oh, on Easter Sunday is the big that's one. That's a popular like, one. You know, yeah. what, can, what, what can you get it on camera? Um, uh, uh, so with all this historical stuff that I'm, that I'm really quite interested in, I keep coming back to the same question, which my friends think is a little peculiar, but but here we go. <laughs> um, I do not know that much about my father's family. Uh, my mm. father died when I was quite young. Uh, his father died uh, when he was quite young as well, and his mother died, I think, when he was five, and his father had remarried. Um, I have a picture of my father's father and a picture of my father's mother. I know that my father's father was born in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, and my grandmother, my father's mother, was born in Poland. And I want to know their stories. Mm. Uh, my grandmother, my father's mother, died in the influenza epidemic of 19, 1918. Um, I don't know when she came to the United States. I don't know when her husband came to the United States. I don't know how they met. Uh, and I want to know what those stories are. So my mother's family, I've got really good documentation, but my father's family, it's not there. I look very much like my father's mother. So if you look mm. at pictures of her and you look at me, so clearly there's a resemblance there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm named after her. Her name was Amelia, oh. which is where Amy comes from. Mm. And I want to know those stories. Wow. Yeah, that that is not peculiar to me at all. And, and, and we have had a couple other guests. And and myself actually yeah. have the same have the same wish to kind of go back and and speak to these people and meet these people. I think that's a beautiful sentiment. And and we will get you in the time machine. There is a huge line, but you are in line, and uh, we'll call you up when your turn comes up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But, I'll bring um, the passport. Yeah, yeah. No, we have, not actually not necessary, but the universal translator. No, I think we'll be all right. Even yeah, better. <laughs> 
Um, all right. So thank you, AJ. So just for our listeners, one more time, um, Amy Jill Levine, author of Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Controversial Rabbi. A wonderful read. If you've liked everything you've heard today on this episode, you will find so much more in her book. I will have the link in the show description. But uh, that's it for this episode of Biblical Time Machine, and we will see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Before you go, time travelers, remember that we are giving away 10 copies of the SBL Study Bible to members of the Time Travelers Club. So if you want to be in the running for that cool resource, subscribe today. This giveaway is only open to listeners who are 18 and over and who reside in the United States. Sorry to our international listeners. We will get you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.